still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will look at an individual murder or a series of killings that have, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 3, Episode 1 Peter Andrew Miller December 1984 There are few years that can compete in terms of the sheer drama on the national stage with 1984. At the very start of the year, Brunei regains its independence from the UK, 96 years after becoming a protectorate of the British Empire. On the 9th of January, a 23-year-old Foreign Office clerk is arrested and charged under the Official Secrets Act. Sarah Tisdall had photocopied documents detailing the arrival of American nuclear weapons on British soil and then sent them anonymously to the Guardian newspaper. The Guardian were taken to court to obtain the name of their source, but the Guardian upheld the concept of protecting the journalistic source. However, the newspaper was, eventually, forced to hand over the documents and they were soon identified as coming from one particular Foreign and Commonwealth Office photocopier, which led to Sarah Tisdale being identified, arrested and jailed. On the 25th of January, the Conservative government of Margaret Thatcher prohibits workers at Government Communication Headquarters, GCHQ, from being members of any union. It was the government's view that membership of a union would be in conflict with national security. It was all part of the Thatcherite drive to smash the unions by presenting them as a threat to the state. In a handy moment of fortune, attention was moved away from the political turmoil that was starting to brew in the country when, to the still beautiful bolero by Ravel, Jane Torville and Christopher Dean won a gold medal for ice skating at the Winter Olympics. The national joy was barely disrupted by the start of yet another industrial dispute. This time, the National Union of Mine Workers, or NUM, were called out on strike by Arthur Scargill. The government were also dealing with a peace protest at Greenham Common, where US nuclear missiles were stored by evicting the 100 or so women forcibly. It was to set the scene for the rest of the year. By April, the NUM strikes were having a significant impact by using flying pickets, coach loads of striking miners taken from one colliery to bulk up the picket lines at others, and police were keen to break up the practice. On the 9th of April, 
More than 100 pickets were arrested at clashes at the Creswell Colliery in Derbyshire and Babington in Nottinghamshire. Eight days later, national attention would shift away from the miners to London, when 25-year-old WPC Yvonne Fletcher was gunned down on the street outside of the Libyan embassy. No one has been charged for her murder. As tensions between the Libyan and British governments intensified, so did the struggles between the miners and the police. On the 29th of May, serious clashes between the two sides left 64 injured at Orgreave, a coking plant in South Yorkshire. The protesting miners then took their protests to the Houses of Parliament. 120 people were arrested after fighting breaks out. The rhetoric from both the government and the NUM inflames the situation with pickets, trouble and disruption happening at an increasing rate. The 18th of June saw a massive contingency of miners arrive back at the Orgrave coking plant in South Yorkshire to disrupt their operations. It would become known as the Battle of Orgreave and have far-reaching consequences for both government and police. 18 police forces deployed more than 6,000 officers in a mixture of regular uniforms with long and short riot shield tactical officers, mounted police and canine officers taking part. There were, of course, intelligence gatherers present too. The police believed that around 5,000 miners were due to arrive, so were ready for them. Robert East wrote in 1985, Quote, the police intended that Orgrave would be a battle where, as a result of their preparation and organisation, they would defeat the pickets. End quote. Police placed the miners in a field overlooking the coke works and surrounded them. To one side was a railway cutting that would have been a dangerous route for them to take. At the opposite side was a road which enabled the mounted police to access the site quickly and in numbers. It was a standoff for a while, with most of the miners sitting in the field or playing football until the first trucks arrived. Then they surged towards the road. Assistant Chief Constable Anthony Clement ordered a mounted charge against them. It was later called, quote unquote, a serious overreaction. In response, the miners began throwing stones and any other missiles they could lay their hands on. Two more mounted charges were ordered, further inflaming the situation. When the third mounted charge was ordered, it was supported by short shield snatch squads, who were beating the unarmed miners with batons. An uneasy lull descended over the site for a few hours, with the police regrouping and the pickets returning to waiting and playing football to pass the time until the police released them, the plant having closed for the day due to the trouble on the doorstep. At this point, the pickets posed no threat to the plant or the police. Police numbers now massively outnumbered the pickets. Corralled in a field with no route out, the miners faced yet another mounted charge with snatch squads and dogs. 
Police pushed the pickets out of the field towards the village of Orgreave, with Clement ordering a police canter, which is a technique where mounted police officers, supported by riot gear, long and short shield carrying police, forcibly moved the pickets through the village. People who turned out to watch the spectacle unfurl found themselves being beaten with batons and truncheons. The police were described as being out of control. In total, 95 pickets were arrested and charged with either violent disorder or riot, with riot carrying a life sentence at the time. Every single trial collapsed due to police evidence being unreliable. In 2015, Alan Billings, the South Yorkshire Police and Crime Commissioner, admitted that the police had been, quote, dangerously close to being used as an instrument of state, end quote. Documents published in 2016, following the inquiry into the 1989 Hillsborough disaster, in which 96 Liverpool fans died as a result of police mismanagement of overcrowding in the football stadium, suggested links between the senior officers of both events. The current Conservative government are currently refusing to hold a statutory inquiry into the events. The coverage of the Battle of Orgreave by the BBC also drew heavy criticism. Their self-claimed accident of cutting the footage to show the miners throwing stones at mounted police and riot squad without showing that it was a retaliatory action following the first mounted charge is pretty thin justification. It was an innocent error they maintained, although how the film made it to air is still in doubt. ITN, the independent news service, showed the events in the correct chronological order. In July 1984, new legislation was passed to prevent strikes without ballots. The power of the shop steward was gone. Industrial action was now by vote only. At the start of August, the government and police suffered another defeat when the European Court of Human Rights upheld a case brought by a Surrey businessman over illegal phone tapping. Police forces the world over would be given a new tool in September when Alec Jeffries developed a technique for extracting and comparing the genetic fingerprint from DNA. A fortnight later, the High Court ruled that the miners' strike was unlawful. Yet the strike rumbled on. In October, at the Grand Hotel in Brighton, a massive bomb planted by the provisional IRA almost assassinated the Conservative cabinet as they slept in their beds. Five people, including MP Anthony Berry, are killed. Many senior government ministers are trapped in the rubble. An enormous anti-terrorism and murder investigation is launched. At the start of December, the third to be precise, the charity single, do They Know It's Christmas, was released to raise funds for the famine in Ethiopia. It became anthemic over that Christmas and helped raise millions. At 7.45pm on the 9th of December, 
Tony Miller returned to the home he shared with his brother Peter in Camden Place, Great Yarmouth, in Norfolk, on the east coast of England. On arrival, he found the door ajar. Upon entering the house, he found his brother on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. He had been stabbed once in the chest. There was a smell that has been described as being CS gas, or tear gas, in the room. 34 years later, his killer is still at large. Life had a rather difficult beginning for the five Miller siblings when they were placed in care. Andrew and Peter were kept together, but as is the way with the care system, most of the siblings were separated and sent to different foster families and care homes. Despite the obvious difficulties they faced, the siblings managed to keep in touch, so that when they were eventually returned to their mother's care and home in Barrack Road, Great Yarmouth, the sense of family was deeply ingrained in them. The previous June, Peter had moved in with Tony and his fiancée in their home in Camden Place. As is often the way, it was a move that would benefit everyone. Siblings help each other, nothing unusual about that. The brothers were close, so when Tony married, it was no surprise that Peter was his best man. The wedding was bittersweet for the family, as they had lost a daughter to stillbirth in the August. Since then, the family had developed a routine of Sunday lunch with mum, then a walk to the cemetery in Galston to pay their respects and visit their daughter's grave. This was no different, although, as was sometimes the case, Peter had decided not to visit the cemetery, opting instead to watch the football on TV. Peter headed back to the shared home in Camden Place, whilst Tony, his wife Paula and his teenage sister Kerry went to the graveside before returning home. As they reached the front door, Tony noticed it was open slightly and the house was in darkness. Urging the two women to wait outside, Tony cautiously entered the building. As he made his way through the house, he saw a figure lying on the floor of the kitchen. Carefully, Tony made his way to a light switch. It became immediately apparent that the figure was his brother, face down and lying in a pool of blood. Instinctively, Tony knew his brother was dead. He dashed back to the women waiting outside and told them to get help from a neighbour. The mobile phone was less than a month away from being used for the first time and it would be many years before it became widespread so a neighbour's landline was used to call the police. Shortly afterwards, a major investigation began. During the initial processing of the crime scene, it was noted that there was a smell like CS gas, that's tear gas, in the room where Peter died. A canister was discovered in the room, but who had used it was undetermined. The possession of CS gas is a serious criminal offence in England and carries a sentence of five years, so it was imperative that the events that surrounded the can being in the house were investigated. But they weren't, properly. CS gas is a cyanocarbon. It causes irritation to the eyes, nose and throat, 
It can cause incapacitation, difficulty in breathing and can, in the cases of people with asthma, even death. It is most widely used by police authorities to quell riots. CS gas takes its name not from the chemical formulation, but the two American chemists from Middlebury College in Vermont who first synthesised it in 1928, Ben Corson and Roger Stoughton. During the 1950s and 60s, the chemical was further developed and tested at the secretive Port and Down research facility near Amesbury and Salisbury. Although it is more likely that it was developed at the Winterbourne Gunner Research Establishment, known these days as the Defence Chemical Biological Radiological and Nuclear Centre, or DCBRNC, which is also very close to Salisbury and Amesbury. The site has been operating since 1917 and continues to be at the forefront of the UK's chemical, biological and nuclear weapons research and development. Peter's body was removed from the crime scene and taken for a full post-mortem. The cause of his death was discovered to be a single stab wound to the chest that had severed a major artery and his windpipe, causing Peter to bleed to death. There had been no struggle, nothing was disturbed in the kitchen, there were no signs of a forced entry, meaning that whoever had killed Peter had, most likely, been admitted entrance by Peter. Police began their suspect list by looking at those closest to Peter and shortly afterwards, Tony Miller was arrested in connection with the murder of his brother. This seems to have been a matter of course, as Tony was released shortly afterwards. His alibi, that he was with his family when they all, collectively, had last seen Peter, was proven quite true. Neighbours were interviewed and one recalled that Peter had been in his garden and had helped them with a minor task. This was in the afternoon and between then and the discovery of his body in the early evening, no one remembered anything out of the ordinary or recalls any visitors or disturbance from the house. Peter's wider circle of acquaintances were questioned and one by one they were eliminated. Although a dedicated family man and loved by those who knew him, like most young men, there were a few less than savoury characters around. Two people with whom Peter had had links were Andrew Hall and Peter Ventham. Hall and Ventham were petty minor criminals with a handful of convictions, primarily relating to property theft. They were, however, eliminated from the investigation. Police seized hundreds of items from the crime scene, the gas canister amongst them, but what was missing was the weapon that had been used to kill him. The murder weapon was a key piece of evidence and its removal from the scene was a big problem for the police, but it also showed that the killer had brought it along, used it to kill Peter with a single fierce blow to the chest, then removed it as they left the scene. What happened after that was unknown. The police station in Great Yarmouth received a call from a woman on the 30th of December 1984. She claimed to have information about the case and requested a female officer to talk to about it. She refused to give any details about herself when asked and rang off shortly afterwards. Police would still like this woman to come forward as they are sure she has important information and will talk in complete confidence. 
if this is you, please come forward. A lot of time has passed and hopefully you are in a situation whereby any allegiances you may have had at the time have changed and the same loyalty no longer applies. Despite an extensive investigation, the case grew cold and fell into the pattern of periodic review. Then, in 1989, just five years after the murder, Norfolk Police made the inexplicable decision to discard or return more than 170 items of evidence, including the CS gas canister. This, quite rightly, outraged his family, and Tony has been an ardent campaigner for an inquiry into the initial investigation and the decision to discard untested evidence. Years and decades passed, but the case was not totally abandoned by the police or, it seems, by people who knew something about it. In 2013, police received a tip-off about a quote-unquote sharp implement that had something to do with the murder, and following the information received, retrieved a still undisclosed sharp implement. The police haven't disclosed where it was found or what tests have been conducted on it but it is believed to have been used in the murder. As I've said, the CS gas canister was disposed of or lost. The original senior investigating officer was handed the can within two months of it being recovered. I've mentioned the police and military uses of CS gas and the legality of it in the UK, but other forms were available on the black market. These were primarily smuggled in from France, where CS gas is a personal deterrent. Day trips to France were all the rage in the 1980s, with the bruise cruise phenomenon taking advantage of excise duty exclusions and personal limits. This resulted in a lot of items that were illegal or not available in the UK being bought in. Flick knives, French bangers, firecrackers, small handguns, and of course, CS spray. The CS canister in this case was a small aerosol designed to fit in a pocket discreetly. It was about six inches or 15 centimeters long with a silvery plastic lid and a molded plastic button and nozzle with a clip for attaching to a pocket or other garment. The main body of the can is black with white lettering and a distinctive logo on the front. There are two white symbols near the lid. One appears to be a multi-point star with some writing in it, and the other, a circle, with some sort of logo. The main writing says anti-aggression, and there's a subheading written in an italic font. Due to the lossy compression of the JPEG I'm working from, most of the writing is illegible, and I'm not even going to guess what it says. Beneath the italicized writing, is a logo. It comprises 14 white five-point stars arranged in a circle, inside of which are a pair of crossed cutlasses with the blade edges downward. The tips are pointing upwards and the handles facing down. In the three spaces created by the crossed cutlasses, there are three capital letters, which read, left to right, MPF. Below the logo is a white rectangle with black text that says patrol in French.
it's really quite nondescript, but I've described it as much as possible in case someone listening knows about European self-defence items from the 1980s. If you do, please get in touch. It's clearly a commercially produced item for the French personal protection market, and the reality of Great Yarmouth, being an historic port town, is little surprised that it was there. Prohibition makes these objects desirable, and working ports can be conduits for all levels of smuggling, including personal items. The question that arose from this murder is who brought it to the crime scene. Was Peter carrying it for self-defence reasons, or was it used by the attacker to momentarily incapacitate Peter to allow for a brutal single stab wound? It has never been established how it came to be a part of the crime scene, and as it has now been lost or otherwise disposed of, these questions will hang in the air forever. The crime scene raises more questions. The lack of a struggle would seem to indicate that Peter knew his attacker and was fatally stabbed before he really had a chance to react, which again raises questions about the CS gas. Had his attacker used it to temporarily incapacitate Peter, there would have been some stumbling and disarray, but there was none. The kitchens in those properties were small, so any kind of interaction would have created some disorder, but the room, according to numerous reports, was not disturbed. A single stab wound to the chest seems like quite an impersonal injury. If it was personal and rage-related, there would have been many, many more puncture wounds, not the single fatal blow that killed him. During 1984 and 1985, there were a number of people questioned about this curious murder, not least his brother, who was quickly eliminated from the investigation. Amongst those questions were two men by the names of James Hall and Andrew Ventham. James Hall owned and ran a garage on the Camden Road in Great Yarmouth. Camden Road is one side of a small, irregularly shaped island of buildings surrounded by Queen's Road to the southwest, Camden Road to the east and the northeast, with Blackfriars Road on the west. The pavement that runs around this uneven pentagonal block is only 345 metres long and comprises an area of around 6,650 metres squared or 71,540 square feet. It, like a lot of the streets in old towns and cities in the UK, has echoes of the ancient and medieval history with narrow lanes and alleyways still in use. The buildings are a mixture of industrial, retail and domestic. It isn't far, only around 210 metres, from the River Yar and the industrial docks that flank it. It is little surprise to see a garage near to the domestic dwellings. Hall and Ventham would have been no more than interesting footnotes who were eliminated, were it not for their demise in 2009. By the age of 30, Derek Tempest was in a settled relationship of nine years with Sarah Sherfield. Together they had three small children, all of whom were under eight years of age. Recently, 
Derek had had a little more cash than normal, but on Wednesday the 28th of October 2009, whilst out for a drink with a friend, Paul McKenna, no relation, he said that he was going to the garage and quote-unquote get some cash. He was last seen on Blackfriars Road at 4pm. It was the last time he was seen alive. McKenna's testimony went on to state that, quote, Derek had told me that he had visited the garage and was taking money off people who worked there. He said when he was 15, the man took him out in his car. He implied he was a dirty old man who wanted favours for taking him out. Derek never mentioned sexual abuse, but I assume that is what happened. End quote. As the inquiry into his disappearance continued, a friend of Derek's, Mr David Philpot, said that Derek had given him £100 for accompanying him to the garage to collect £1,000 in cash. He went on to say that Derek had told him that when Derek was young, Hall and Ventham had attempted to, quote, entice him into a park, end quote. David Philpot also stated that Derek had told him that he had been to the house the pair shared the previous evening, and whilst there he had seen two boys aged around 14 in the house, whilst one of the men was wearing only his boxer shorts. His reaction, according to Mr Philpot, was, quote, he told Jim and Andy that he wanted a thousand pounds by the next day, or he would tell the police that they had two young boys in the house, end quote. Another friend, Mr Simon Hill, gave a statement that detailed an occasion when he had gone with Derek to the garage to collect £800, of which £150 would be given for his time. Mr Hill stated that Derek had had, quote-unquote, had something bad happen to him in his past. Yet another friend, Stephen Rowley, gave a statement saying that Derek had told him, quote, tried it on with him, unquote. Meanwhile, the police investigation into Derek's disappearance continued, but there was no further sign of him. On the 2nd of November, Mr Stephen Catchpole, an odd job man who worked occasionally at the garage, found a note pinned to the garage door in Hall's handwriting, which said, quote, Back in 30 minutes, Jim. End quote. On hearing the sound of a car engine running inside, Catchpole forced an entry into the closed garage. Inside, he found Hall and Ventham dead in the front seats of a Fiat car. Their post-mortem reports found that they had both died of carbon monoxide poisoning. During the examination of the scene, police found a note in Hall's handwriting that said, quote, Sorry about this, but events have conspired against us. End quote. An unnamed witness is said to have reported that he had heard Hall and Ventham talking about threatening to kill Derek, saying, quote, We will give him a gypsy's warning. If we get any more shit like this, he is going into the river. Whilst police were searching the site of the double suicide, they found, according to Detective Inspector Marie James of Norfolk Constabulary, forensic evidence that suggested Derek had, quote, come to significant harm at the garage, end quote. But of Derek Tempest, there was no sign until April the following year. 
A family holidaying on a boat on the Norfolk Broads, a large area of rivers and lakes, found a body in the water of the River Yar near the Berry Arms area. When police recovered the body, it was found to be weighted down with a drum break around his waist, causing him to be face down in the water. Due to the passage of time, there had been significant decay, and water is an unkind medium to be placed in. Water with wildlife even more so. Eventually, and with the aid of dental records, this body was identified as being the missing Derek Tempest. The cause of death was unable to be determined due to decomposition, but suicide was ruled out. At the inquest, Detective Inspector James said that the police had, quote-unquote, strong evidence that Mr Tempest had been unlawfully killed by Hall and Bentham. She went on to say that the Crown Prosecution believed that had they lived, they would have been charged with his murder. Following the death of Hall and Bentham, police had many people come forward to say that they had been abused as children and that they had been continuing to abuse children up until their deaths, but there had been no reports or complaints prior to that. In 2010, Tony Miller, Peter's brother, wrote to the Norfolk police imploring them to review the evidence in the murder of his brother. At the time of Peter's murder, he and Tony were neighbours with Hall and Bentham. In response to Tony's letter, a spokesman for Norfolk police, Anne Atter, said that there was currently no evidence to link the murder of Derek Tempest and the murder of Peter Miller. Is it possible that Peter Miller had seen something that would threaten Hall and Ventham? It's possible, but there is a big difference in methodologies. Derek's murder seems to have been a warning that turned fatal, with the culprits disposing of the body and then being overcome by their actions, whereas Peter's murder seems more restrained, almost clinical in that the level of violence seems minimal. One single stab wound, with the victim being left at the scene. Whilst I can understand the suggestion that Hall and Bentham had something to do with it, it seems unlikely. Little happened with Peter's murder investigation until 2013, when police received information that led them to the location of what they describe as a sharp implement. This is potentially a massive breakthrough in the case, and the item was sent off for a forensic examination. As yet, there is no update on this discovery or how the item was located. The case has since failed to move forward, leaving Peter's family angry and resentful towards the police. Since 2014, Tony has worked tirelessly to try and get an open and public inquiry into the loss and destruction of vital evidence, effectively cutting off large amounts of possible leads. But the police and government are still refusing the request for such an inquiry. A statement released by Norfolk Constabulary said, quote, Case evidence and papers including all statements and the full inquest papers for the murder of Peter Miller are still held by the unsolved case inquiry team and the inquiry remains open. However, the exhibits held in the investigation were either returned to their respective owners or destroyed by the end of 1991. The circumstances behind this fact are not clear as records do not provide any details of any decisions taken at that time. However, whilst this may have limited the forensic review opportunities, 
it has not prevented the unsolved case team from progressing any new information with a view to bringing a resolution to the case. End quote. To date, Tony is still campaigning for an inquiry into the handling of Peter Miller's murder and the disposal of crucial evidence. Peter's murderer remains uncaptured. It's most likely that Peter Miller knew his killer, had answered the door to them, let them in, and was taken by a surprise lunge with a blade that severed his windpipe and an artery. The tear gas seems like a deliberate attempt to mislead, but to say definitively if it had been handled by the killer or Peter, the canister would need to be located, but police have lost or destroyed it. What is sure is that the killer was a local, knew Peter, and simply walked away from the scene back into their everyday life. Over the 34 years that have passed, that person has had to live with their guilt, live with the knowledge that they have killed and have probably confided in someone or dropped hints or made references to the case. They need to be convinced to come forward or someone else needs to stop protecting them. The longer normal than intro for today's show is to illustrate the pressures that faced the British police at the time. Resources were being drained by an ongoing clash between the state and the miners' union, as well as the massive terrorism investigation into the Brighton bombing. All was chaos, and whilst many police were dedicated to solving the crime, they were soon drawn away by another horrific murder, that of three-year-old Leonie Keating, who was abducted, sexually assaulted, then thrown into a river. They caught that killer. The pressures of the time were exacerbated by the government using the police as a weapon of the state rather than a prevention, protection and investigation public service. Every time the police are politicised, the public lose out and criminals gain. Please share this episode on all the social media pages for Great Yarmouth, Norfolk, East Anglia and any others you think might be useful. Tony has a 38 degrees petition calling on the Home Office to launch an inquiry. The link is in the show notes. As of July 2018, Peter Miller's murderer is still at large. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. You can join in with conversations about the show on our Facebook discussion group by visiting facebook slash stillatlargepodcast. I'd also like to ask you to, if possible, leave a rating or a review on iTunes to help get this podcast seen by more people. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production. <laughs>